Hello there, my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Anglers and commercial fishermen are never going to be the best of friends, particularly when it comes to the thorny subject of netting salmon as they enter the estuaries below the point at which rod and line activity starts. Shortfalls in fish numbers to the rod are invariably seen as fish having been taken out by other means. But is that necessarily always the case? Are commercial netters really depleting salmon stocks? Or are they doing little more than preserving a tradition passed down over the generations as a living piece of history? It isn't my place to pass judgement on that, but it is my place through audio angling to give all participants with an interest in fishing the chance to have their say. And with that in mind, today I'm with salmon netter Harry Whiteside from Freckleton, down on the estuary of the River Ribble in Lancashire. My name is Harry Whiteside, I'm 71 years of age and I've been salmon fishing probably since the age of 11. My first encounters with salmon fishing were when I was about 11 years of old and uh, prior to that my father, he'd been a salmon fisherman and he fished for a, an old fella called Old Bob Roscoe. Old Bob Roscoe retired and uh, my father then fished for an old chap called Old Hugh Baxter and Bob Baxter. Old Hugh Baxter was a very famous fisherman and his nickname was Old Cherry. Bob, his son, sadly was blind and I used to go and get the shop in and he used to come over to Freckleton from Banks, Esketh Bank and they used to stay for the week in the old house boat at Nays Point. They moored the boat down there and they came over every week and my father used to shuttle them across from Esketh Bank to this side and I used to have to go and get fat bacon and the provisions for the week and that is basically how I became involved with old you and salmon fishing and from the age of 11 I was probably going with them in the school holidays virtually every day and by the age of 12 I was sculling and pulling with old you and we took it in turns sometimes I'd go with old you sometimes I'd go with blind Bob and uh he was quite a character. He was what you might call a very bad-tempered little old fellow. God bless, God bless, God bless, and put it side, put it side, and, and, and then they get it in here to that wall, come off that wall, come off that wall, put it side, put it... So at the end of the day, about, when I was about 12, I said, which bloody way do you want me to pull? And he was quite amazed because he didn't really swear, but he had his old briarwood pipe all the time. And when we were coming home at night in the dark, you could see cinders flying off his pipe and it would stick in the sail. The sail was full of holes. and we'd <laughs> Anyhow, we had some fantastic times. Though He was my mentor. And if only I could have emulated his lifestyle more than I have done, I'd have had a very happy life because he died in the boat at the age of 83. And it was the first tide that I had missed going with him. By that time, of course, I was in my 30s. And uh, so he did have a very, very long and happy life. And he died, no doubt, the way that he would like to have done, which was in the boat. So that was all you, Baxter and Bob and my father. And we spent many, many happy hours in the old house boat. Yarning and I did a dialect poem when he died and uh, dedicated it to him, and if I can just recite this, it's very, very, very dialectic, and it might be difficult for some people to understand, but I can, at some stage, uh, enlighten you as to some of the words. How I remember them colourful days, setting the old house at yearning, drinking from a gondobitten cracked-out mug, which pitch and oakum coils a rope, I watched the same face, while next they were dining, 
reflected in fire from rusty red stove. Tang out the oil skins, stained salt and fishy, clacking a loose teeth round the briarwood pipe. Never a chap more versed in his art. Thy knowledge I glean with deepest respect about netting, tides, sandbanks, weather. Time seemed to drift as the trim fishing smack. Gare eggs, demming, lattering and such. I'd known the for years but couldn't catch all. And the times thy kebble dackles erect at me vacant looks when I misunderstood. And remember time on three gardeners with silver lying on green. We'd look at each other knowing our wealth. Past our chips welded our spirits as one now they're gone. Yet still I can catch the smell from the old black twist. And people passing ask where's the old man? I say he did his boo at fitting his plan. Well that was just a simple thing about old you. That was how I became involved with fishing really. And uh, he was my hero. So that was the start of it all. Can you talk us through now to modern times? Well, I went to sea for quite a good number of years and then when I got married, I got the ultimatum. It was either the sea or me from my wife. So then I worked in various jobs, but I was fortunate enough to be employed by a local builder who, when the salmon fishing season came round, which was a then on a six-monthly basis, I was fortunate enough we fished from March, April, May, June, July, August, but nobody ever fished March and April. We didn't used to start usually till the middle of May, but the employer that I, I had used to let me off to go fishing for four months, and then at the end of the four-month season, it would take me back on, and that went on for like nearly 30 years. So I was very fortunate in that respect. When I first started fishing, obviously I, I got the equipment and searched. I got my boat from Morecambe. Every year has been different. There were quite a number of fish at the time that I was fishing, and there were six boats on the river. There was the Parkinson's from Lytham, Dick Baxter from Esketh Bank, Tarleton. There was Bob and Hugh Baxter from Banks. There was Bill Dawson. He came from Esketh Bank. And there was... Uh, John Hankinson, the landlord of our local pub, and there were six of us, and we, we all fished, and we all had a, a reasonably good time. We caught fish, and uh, I wouldn't say that the stocks are any less, because there are times when I fished for 10, 12, 14 fish in a season, but not obviously I've not been doing it to the full extent. The best season that I ever had, I had 250, which was when I actually had the first season that I ever fished single-handedly on my own and never emulated that since. <laughs> so. Maybe if you was to describe the boat and equipment and how that's evolved over time, we might get a better mental picture of the scene. Was it always done by oar power, for example? Well, I, I did used to use a motor many years ago. It was a very old seagull, probably the oldest seagull known to man because the serial number was AD280. So I would imagine that was quite old. It wasn't made in Roman times, but... It would have sounded like it. And it was more an encumbrance than anything else and one of the biggest fears of the, of the old fellas and especially the old traditional fishermen like old Hugh Baxter. Well, they'll be getting petrol hot fish and if they get petrol hot fish, they're no good. So uh, uh, we, we, we don't want to use... We, we, that's the work for fish. That's the work for them. They haven't getting bells on. They doesn't get them easy. And out comes easy. So you used to get all this. And obviously I finished up as a traditional fisherman using just net and sail and 
oars and virtually well, the boats are 13 foot clinker built boat. The one that I have at the present moment is modelled on a 1910 traditional Ribble salmon fishing boat. She's 13 foot long. Uh, I have sail, oars, the net is 160 metres long and uh, 9 feet deep, 6.5 inch mesh and therefore any fish that are below 7-8 pound, quite a good chance of getting through. If they strike fully on, they can get through quite easily. The really big fish, uh, 27.5 pound being the biggest fish that I've ever caught, they don't have a tendency, they sometimes just get fast with their teeth or the mouth. They can't get their heads in and it's quite a bit of a precarious job getting them in because you've got to make sure that you pick the net up the right way, i.e. you've got them in the bag. We don't use gaffs anymore, they've been illegal for many, many years. But when I was a lad, every salmon fisherman had a gaff hidden away under the bottom boards. Of course, it's a bad thing if you gaff a fish and it gets away, it's injured. I never was any good at gaffing anyhow. And as far as I can say, I, I just carry on in the traditional way and the best catch I ever had in was with old you Baxter and we got down to Lytham one night. As the moon was out, it was a lovely, quiet night, which wasn't, how should I say, conducive to catching fish. But by the time we got to Lytham, we had 12 in the boat and Dick Baxter was pushing us down and we were opposite the Clifton Arms, which is more or less the 9 and 5 eighths mile lamp the nine and five eighths mile lamp being nine and five eighths miles from the bullnose at Preston. And we were getting pushed down and we were amongst trees and anchors and there were about 30 or 40 yachts at that time moored at Lytham. And it was quite a precarious job getting round and old you Baxter was he hated being in that position. So he said, We let the poo down, we let the poo down and I said, Well it were too late. I said it's nearly coming flood. God blast, oh, God blast, God blast. I said, well, we can't pull down. Well, he said, we had to pull back and get between Dick Baxter and Bill Dawson. I said, well, we're too late. I said, let's put a bit of net out here. Well, I can't put the bloody net out here. He said, the anchors and rocks, they can't. I said, well, let's just put a bit out. No, he said, it's better be flood on us. I said, well, let's just put a bit of net out. So we were about 30, 40 foot off the side, near the Clifton Arms at Lytham. I put about six or seven corks out, bang. I said, there's a fish, it's all to it, all to it, all to it. So I got it in, I killed it, put about another three or four carts out, bang. I said, there's another, all to it, all to it, all to it. So put it out, another three or four carts out, bang. I said, bloody hell, there's another. Get it in, get it in, all to it, all to it. And they were lying all the way along the side, just waiting for flood. And we came back right through the yachts, right through all the buildings, never touched a thing. And we finished up with 22 fish in the bottom of the boat. And that was the most fish that old Hugh Baxter had ever caught in his lifetime of fishing. And we slept in the houseboat that night. And the next morning, my father came down to the river and he said, Bloody hell, he said, where are we, where are we getting all them free? And they were all led there on the side. And we had to go and get Harry Hall with his Land Rover, the farmer from the Nays farm, to come down. And we took them to Lytham and sold them to, at that time, we used to sell to O'Callaghan, who had a game and poultry factory just next to the railway pub over the, I think it's called Railway Street, I'm not sure. Just to be clear, you start upstream with your fishing beat, then drift down with the flow on the move all the time. We're on the move all the time. Now, it involves, how should I say, now, 
the mud has always been a big problem at the moorings and it's knee deep at times and after a big fresh of course if a big fresh has been coming down it does get washed off but uh, the river is changing all the time there's sandbanks building up sandbanks building up here sandbanks building up there every day every every tide is virtually it changes but the mud it's not a hazard but it's when you have to carry a bag full of fish up and, and you're not in the first flush of youth, it's not as easy as it was. And from the start, I'll just virtually pull the boat into the side, get in, unfasten off the moorings, chuck the net end boy out. If there's a boy on either end of the net, scull like mad till I get quite a little bit of movement on the net so there's enough length of net to keep pulling the rest of the net out and then virtually just scull across from one side of the river to the other all the time going down towards the Douglas, which is the five and a half mile lamp where two rivers meet, the River Douglas, or some call it the Asland. I prefer to call it the Asland, which is the old Viking name for it. And then just drift, and wherever there are sandbanks, the net will, by virtue of the sandbanks being on either side, it will come into the middle. It virtually follows the flow of the river all the time. And where the sandbanks widen out, where the river widens out, the net will widen out. And then sometimes I will let one end go to pull the other end out, or I'll get to the other end and then go and pull the other end. So it's just a matter of basically going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And then when a fish strikes or hits the net strikes, you see a splash, a good splash, nine times out of ten. Not always. And I just throw the net end boy in, go to where the fish is, and sometimes there may be two or three have struck at the same time. Well, it's quite a while since he had a what we call a double barreler or two or three at the same time. And pick the bottom cord and the top cord up, and hopefully they'll be meshed, which then you've caught them. But if they're not really properly fast, you get them in the bag and then try and get them in that way. But we do miss quite a lot of fish in, in the process of trying to get them in. The old fella that I used to fish with, one of his maxims was, all you Baxter, leave them, leave them, just let them stay there because the longer they're in, the tireder they are so that when you go to get them, you pick them up, there's not much fight left in them. So I, I tend to follow his principles, but some of the young blokes that go with me, I have a couple of lads on the licence, well, they're, oh, let's get it, let's get it, let's get it, they can't wait, you know, they don't have much patience, but I have plenty. You mentioned there some of your better catches, but obviously there will have been slower days and no doubt even occasions without any fish at all. So looking back over the years, are you able to pick out any trends depending on, say, seasonality or river conditions? And more importantly, do you see catch rates now in 2012 sliding into decline? I can't really say because it's like a good crop and a bad crop. It's like, a, I suppose... An orchard, you'll have a good crop one year and a bad crop the next. And what happened years and years ago, according to my father, was that the old bailiff, an old fella called Maitland, the river had gone into a terrible state of decline. There were very, very few fish. And in fact, my dad told me that he once fished for a single fish. The only, well, I'm not saying they went very many times, but he caught one fish one season. But Maitland was a quite a, a canny old chap and fairly well up, fairly well educated and he went up to Scotland and brought a lot of salmon eggs down from Scotland from Thursaw and he reared them in boxes alongside of the river himself and when they got to smolt size he released them 
and they reckon from that day on, actually, the increase in, in catches, you know, the first returns from those fish, and the, the shape of the fish apparently had, had altered from, I don't know, they're deeper and smaller, you know, they're not the same length, and they're not as narrow now. They are a, a very compact, well-made fish. And the, the average size of the, the fish that I've been catching for the last two or three years has been averaging 11 pounds, which is quite good. You wouldn't get away with that these days because of the importance of keeping genetic integrity within the population. Though for the ribble, what you've just said rather makes a mock of any efforts on that particular score. Yeah, well, the Environment Agency, uh, they have now rescinded all their... I should have said they've, they've closed their hatcheries at uh, Sledburn. Well, I used to go up with the, the bailiff and help them to spawn. And they had, had the fishing tanks. And I used to go up there and... I used to look after his children while he, he went up for a fortnight each year and he went took his wife up and his children and I used to look after the children at night for him when he went out and we used to take it in spells of going out. But they did all the spawning themselves, did they? It wasn't called the Environment Agency and they keep changing the name. And when anything goes wrong, invariably, the top man moves to another district and then somebody else has to carry the can. But apparently the Ribble Fisheries Association now are in charge of all the stocks and the rearing, and they're at which well, yeah. So that's all I know about them. But I know that they're a very devious body of men, and I don't care whether they hear this, because I know they don't want the nets on the river. They've been trying to get us off for many, many years. I've been to various meetings with the I and the Mighty, and they're all very wealthy men, money men. As far as I'm concerned, the traditional netsmen... And my family in particular, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, the Lytham people, they have made a living out of the river. The river has provided shrimping, cockling, mussling, even flounders and salmon. And so it's been the source of keeping people fed and making money in the past, which is now their, their argument is that it's in excess of a thousand rods on the River Ribble. Now, if each one of those rods takes a fish, that's above a thousand fish. This year, I personally had 28, and there were only three of us fishing, and the other lads had less than me, so... <laughs> but I know that the a thousand rods, they don't all catch one, because I had an uncle that fished on the loom for about five years or six years before he caught his first fish, and this catch and return that they keep purporting to, to operate, well, they don't operate catch and return, because I went on a walk, Round Earth's Green the other week with the members of the church walking club and I was talking to an angler and I said, he fished for the Wigan anglers. So I said, oh, I said, well, you'll be all right. You operate this catch and return. He said, catch and return? What's that? He said, no such thing. He said, I've had six this year. He said, but four of them were sea trout. So that's... Do you think that they'll phase the commercial licences out someday altogether? They have done now because we've agreed, in essence, that and if I rescind my licence now, that is it. And a chap called Jack Wilkinson, he packed in four years ago and his licence has never been reallocated. Raymond Ball, he packed in last year, or the year before, actually, I would say. He didn't take his licence out last year because he's been ill and sick. And myself, I'm 71, I'm not going to be doing it much longer because... Not being a driver, I find it increasingly difficult to get me fish from A to B, i.e. I've got to get them out of the boat, get them up to the farm, 
get them from the farm on the carrier bike, get them to Lytham. It's not unusual to see me cycle after I've rode seven or eight miles, cycle back from the river. It's not unusual to see me cycle at half past six in the morning to Ladigans at Lytham to offload three or four fish, or one fish or two fish. But nine times out of ten I do get transport. So you're primarily targeting salmon, but from time to time you must also catch other species of fish as well. The amount of flounders that we're catching now is phenomenal. I mean, I have had in excess of 200 when I've been running up, and it's a big problem because in order to get these flounders out, I'd release them all, release all the flounders if I can possibly do it. To somebody is retired now, I'm not going to mention who, he flattens, they kill them, like I said, they're not, I'm not going to get them again. But one of the good things about it is that the flounders we're catching at the moment are very, very free of disease. About five or six years ago or more, lots of them had big tumours on, growths and horrible. I had one this year that I had to get all of it, obviously, but I, I wasn't very happy about the fact that I had all of that flounder. And I've seen times in the old days when I was a little lad, we had dolly tubs and tin baths full in our back kitchen full of flounders and my grandmother would be gutting them and take these to Mrs Braid, take these to Mrs Brown, take them. they all had big families of kids and they thought they'd got the crown jewels. But a lot of them had bad growths on them but they've been very, very, very healthy for the last couple of years and uh, some meat on I don't know why there isn't a market for flounders because in the upmarket papers, i.e. the Times and the Telegraph and things like that, the celebrity chefs are extolling the virtues of flounder. But here, I've only sold one lot of flounders and he didn't want any more. <laughs> that was to Ladigan, the fish merchant to Lytham. He didn't want any more, but uh, obviously didn't give us very much for him. But uh, I can't see why more people are not eating the flounders. But then again, we have the effluent coming in from uh, BNFL, but uh, which is monitored. And the radioactivity levels in the river are supposed to be quite low. Also, the mullet. Now, mentioning mullet, they've been coming into the river about 30 years now. My first experience with a mullet was uh, when I was picking the net up one night and I thought, oh yes, a nice little sea trout here. And I grabbed it and uh, I bloody soon let it go because I had a back fin down my finger. Spike went about a quarter of an inch down my fingernail and I thought, well, that isn't the sea trout. After that, we were catching and I was pulling down the river in the middle of the night and along the wall side, especially when it was a warm night, and bang, used to frighten the living daylights out here. Next thing, there'd be four or five flying out. One smacked me behind the head one time and I thought the bloke in the boat had actually hit me. I thought he'd had a funny do and hit me with a stick. And the next thing, this mullet would be going all around the bottom of the boat. They used to jump in the boat. Now, the lads from Lytham, who at this time were out of work, some of the ex-fishermen, and they weren't, able to make a sustainable living out of fishing they suddenly found out that mullet coming in these vast quantities they could make a living so they started fishing for mullet and then that progressed they, they virtually fished them out you don't catch mullet anymore and you don't see them anymore there's pools down the river where some nights there's been in excess of four or five hundred mullet just swimming about the top with their back fin showing you never see any mullet at all now. But from mullet, they progressed to the bass fishers. So then we had about 10 or 12 boats fishing for bass, which has gradually diminished. 
until now, I think there are only two or three doing it to any extent. And they don't do too badly out of the bass. Myself, personally, it's very unusual to catch a bass. Uh, maybe I've had about 15 or 20 in 50 years of fishing. Uh, but the biggest was probably about 20 pounds. And I took it, I usually give them, actually, to be friends. I know they're quite valuable, but I usually give them. I cut them up and give, give them bass. And... Uh, one of my friends in particular, I took the bass to him and I gutted it for him and I found these two great big growths in it, which when I showed him, he wasn't really keen on eating the fish. So <laughs> we sent it off for analysis to Lancaster University and they found out that it was a just a normal fish tumour. It wasn't harmful to, to man, but I don't know where the origins of it were, where, whether it was due to any pollution or not, I never got to know. Now, of course, we have the uh, the cockle beds have reopened, so there is another mode of making a living out of cockling. But mussels, mussels used to stretch all the way from Preston Dock all the way down to the 14 and a quarter mile lamp, which is virtually the end of the wall on the south side of the river, opposite maybe St Anne's Pier. And the mussels extended all that way down and... Now you won't find a mussel until you probably get to about the 12th mile and they're not apparently edible and you're not allowed to eat them because they are supposed to be polluted. But to the cockles, well I don't know how, why it affects the cockles and not the mussel, but the mussels have never come back. I can't understand why because the water is apparently much better than it used to be but I find myself that when the dredges were operating we had a better through flow of water we had better runs of water and on a big fresh, which used to shift a lot of rubbish and the dredges operating, the through flow of water was better and the, the catches of fish were better, far better. I thought the opposite would happen, that when it reverted back to its natural course and started becoming natural, i.e. The, the shipping finished it going up to Preston Docks, I thought that the river itself would apparently get better but it, it hasn't it's just been the opposite really and the tide now runs for nine hours it ebbs for nine hours whereas when the dredges were operating you could virtually say it was eight hours you got eight hours to fish and then you got a slack period what we call debbing or damming slack water and we will get a period of probably 20 depending on the height of the tide obviously a bigger tide comes in quicker but we'd usually get 10, 15, 20 minutes to half an hour where we could fish, and that was the best time for fish moving. They used to move as the tide flooded, but we never used to fish up. We couldn't fish back up because at this time, the dredges being very shallow drafted and moored down at the 12th mile in the lighthouse hall, the dredges would be starting to move up, slowly up to Preston, to pump where the sandbanks were at their highest level. And uh, my father, he worked on the surveyor launch with the surveyors and they used to go taking soundings and they were involved in showing the sand pumps where to get the sand. And I definitely think that the river was better when the sand pumps and the dredges were operating. How do natural changes such as water colour and volume coming down from inland affect netting in the estuary? Because it certainly has an effect on salmon catches and potential further upstream. Fresh water is very good 
maybe after a couple of days after all the debris gone we obviously can't fish when there's a big fresh coming down because it's bringing tires and logs and bottles and mess and twigs and we can't fish at that time because your net will be absolutely full of debris and you will get and that's another thing with there is a lot of sunken trees and, and old anchors and wrecks and all sorts of stuff scattered about and you've got to know where these things are otherwise I mean I've lost lots of gear over the years if you get fast on a tree that's been there that if there's a bit of big fresh there'll probably be a tree lodged somewhere that you don't know about and you get on that and you might have to cut I've cut I've lost loads of nets cutting so it's just not a matter of putting a net out and you've got to actually have your wits about you especially if it's blowing a howling gale in the middle of the night and you're fast on a 30 or 40 foot tree that's sunk in the bottom of the river and then you've got that to contend with as well as mending the nets and of course it yields have two or three reserve nets but uh, the time spent mending nets is considerable and it's a skill that not many people have nowadays in fact it seems a very strange thing to say that the old man that was my mentor old Hugh Baxter he couldn't mend nets. <laughs> I used to finish up doing it for him because I've always been keen on knots and fancy work and making bell ropes. So, yeah, I do all my own net mending and I quite enjoy it, really. On a nice summer's day, we're having a net strung out and mending the holes, cutting it out. and Yeah, so that's another little thing that we have to do that people don't think about. Well, the rod and lines men don't think about it. I've been told or informed by them that the revenue that is generated by virtue of them fishing, i.e. shops, selling tackle, hotels, catering for people that... Well, if you can afford to pay five or £600 to fish with a rod and line, it's you're not badly fixed. Cost me now £450 to fish with a net, and I'm not... I just made it back this year. I made it back. I finished up with myself with £40 profit. That's what I got myself. So give me lads. I give them. They got more than me. <laughs> and my wife got a bit more than me. So, But uh, if you're way up 28 fish, you're not making a... But it's, it's, the, it's the thrill. The actual thrill and the... How should I say? I, may, I mean, I'm not in... I'm not one for fox hunting and I uh, would be anti-blood sports, but the thrill of going out with a net and catching salmon in an howling gale in the middle of the night and the pouring rain and the lightning it's uh, especially when it's lightning and you can which I don't like but it's a marvellous sight he's seen a couple of fish striking when it's lightning you can see them you know lit up in the light but it's uh, there's an old saying amongst the old fellas that are saying it'll make you laugh or it'll make you cry well it hasn't made me cry yet but it's brassed me off a bit so we'll move on there from there. <laughs> Legislation these days has a huge part to play in all aspects of life, and here that will apply to both yourself as well as the anglers. To what extent has that become more apparent over recent years, and how much has it affected or curtailed what you can or must do? It's, I mean, the restrictions that we have to put up with now, i.e. when I started fishing, I could actually have continued working and had an indoor sea fishing for me which is what I used to do for old you and Bob Baxter. They sometimes would have a week off and I would fish for them. And uh, I saw my father, my father would fish for them. So 
we could virtually sit at home and let somebody else do the fishing. Although I'm not saying you, you, you were going to get any money out of it because it all depends on whether you caught any or not. Now, that's one thing that they brought in, that the licence holder had to be in the boat at all times. That was one way, and I've got a, a story to tell you here which defies all credibility. But that was one restriction we had, and then we were the only river, and this is where the story comes in, that was able to fish in March. Then they knocked March off us, but I'll tell you that, that is a story that you would want to hear, and, but, and it's a, about my, the friend of mine, who's one of my very, very best friends, I was best man at his wedding, the Salmon Bailiff, and his bosses. At that time, it was a chap called Cameron Jewry, and then there was a Daffy Docker, who we used to call him Daffy, some Welshman, I forgot what his name was. Quite a few different ones. And at this time, it was Cameron Jewry who gave the OK, but we'll get back to that. And then they knocked March off us, then they knocked April off us, then now they knocked May off us, and now we fish June, July, and August, which is a three month season as opposed to a six month season. But as I said earlier on, we did not profess to start fishing in March or April. Although, what my father told me, he had 22 in April one one time, one year. But we never used to really start fishing till mid-May. So we got May, June, July and August. The best month, apparently, if we'd ever have been able to get it, would have been September. And just to go back and reiterate a bit about what we're speaking about now, bringing all sorts of restrictions in, this law that they brought in now, if I pop my clogs or any of it, no, it's not going to be reallocated. Now, I have spoken to a few people and they seem to think this is a bit of a draconian measure, that it should not be like that. These five licenses, six licenses actually, if they have been going on for so many hundreds of years, they should not be able to just say willy-nilly, we're going to like stop all netting now. It's not how should I say, an industry anymore. It's a tradition. And maybe an angler gets a fantastic thrill out of catching a, a salmon on a rod, yeah. Well, that's brilliant. Now, to get back to the story that I'm going to tell you about how oh, we lost March, many years ago, and you've seen a photograph, I've shown you some photographs before, my best friend and myself, we were indoor seas on Mr Baxter's licence, old you Baxter's licence. Now, my very good friend, the salmon bailiff at the time, and Cameron Jewry and Melvin Swindles, who was, I think, Ed Bailey for the time, and Jim Jakes, they said to my friend and myself, who were indoor seas on New Baxter's licence, why don't you fish in March? Why don't you try March? I said, March? You must be joking. Nobody's ever fished in March since before the war. I said, it's, no, it's just a no-brainer fishing in March. I said, it's freezing bloody cold. No, I said, no. And, but my mate... He was, he was kind of a, an intuitive, very, he was a, a keen hunter, shooter, every, you know, he was a wildlife man. He said, ah, why, why don't we try it? Why don't we try it? He said, why don't we go? He said, uh, there might be some springers. I said, oh, I said, Isn't it? No, nobody's fished the Allen since before, you know, since before the war. Well, let's try it. Well, Cameron Jewry said, well, I'd be very glad if you would go and try and fish on the first day of March. Because in the interest of science and in the interest of, for us, on our part, it would be very interesting to see if there was anything moving in March. So, you're not going to believe this. 
the bailiff came down to our house, picked myself and Mr McGinty up, and the net, took us down to the river, put us into the boat, got the net, helped us down to the boat with the net, put it in the boat, and off we set. And we just got below Asland foot, which is the five and a half mile lamp, and bang, the biggest fish I've ever seen in my life. It must have been a 40 pounder. It was the biggest fish I've ever seen. I went to it, it said it was so big, I couldn't get it in the boat. I got it to the gunnel, and the next thing it was up, boom, friends, back, woof, gone. And McGinty was going absolutely mad. Why did you get the bloody gaff in it? Get the bloody gaff in it. I said, don't have a gaff, Alan. I said, we haven't got a gaff. Should have got the bloody gaff in it. I said, I don't gaff him anyhow. So we missed it. Well, he was having a wobbler because at that time, we would have been getting a very good price in March for a, a fresh run wild Atlantic salmon and it was in pristine condition it was so silver it was like a bar of silver anyhow I thought well that's it you know the first day of March a bit later on bang another I went to it got it an 18 pounder beautiful because I used to carry a little scale me boat beautiful fish 18 pounder over the moon first day of March nobody's ever fished since the you know since before the war McGinty was all up and down. Oh, then we had another strike again. I suspect that the strike that we got this third time was the fish that we had initially, the, the big fish, the big boy. Anyhow, we had this really big strike at the end and we went to the end of the net and it had gone. So we, we were quite happy with having an 18-pound fish in the bottom of the boat in, on the first day of March and we came back to the moorings and there is my friend, the bailiff, and I'm holding this fish up. Look at this. I'm not mentioning any names. Look at this. It's, well, I'll have to confiscate it, won't I? I said, what are you on about? Well, I'll have to confiscate it. You're fishing out of season. I said, how do you mean we're fishing out of season? Well, he said, your season doesn't start till the 1st of April. I said, what you just brought? I said, Cameron Dewey's asked us to go fishing. You brought us down to the river with the nets. I said, uh, look. I said, we've got this 18-pound fish. He said, yeah, but we'll have to confiscate it. I said, well... What for? He said, because you're fishing out of season. I said, but our season begins on the first day of March. No, we've decided to bring you on a national basis into line with all the other rivers in the country. I said, well, you, what? I said, confiscate the fish. And my mate being a bit of a hard case, he said, if he touches that fish, he said, he follows, he, he said, he said, I'll have to throw it back, won't I? I said, you what, throw it back? He said, if he touches that fish, he follows it. I said, don't touch him because we'll never fish again. So I said, why don't we cut it up between us? I said, who's going to know that we've caught a fish anyhow? He said, well, I'll know, wonder. I said, but our fish season starts on the 1st of March. I said, let's take it to the old folks' home. No. And he picked it up and legged it in. So then, my mate, McGinty had a wobbler. Get your ass, he said, up to the pub. Get up to the ponkies now. Get up to the coaching horses. We went up to the coaching horses. Got John Hankinson's licence out from the year previous, except in the River Ribble, where the season begins on the first day of March, underlined. So then McGinty said, we want compensation for this fish. We want compensation. Anyhow, do you what they did? It was a ploy to get that month, I'm sure. I got letters from Cameron Jewry and from various people on the Environment Agency, or what it was called then, I don't know, it was National Rivers or whatever. And he said, uh, 
technically you were fishing out illegally because your licence hadn't been sent through the post, hadn't been allocated to you, and uh, technically you weren't licensed to fish. And we have now decided to bring you into line with all the other rivers on a national basis. So your season now will start on the 1st day of April. Now that is a member of their staff taking you down to the river, having the say-so from the top men in the, the office. How would you construe that? Would you say that was like a, a bit of a, a stupid trick to throw a fish like that away as well, throw it back in? But I have forgiven him because we're still best friends. Best if I say nothing here because I know all the people concerned. I used to work for the Environment Agency in the Fisheries Department. Well, I used to go with Melvin and Jim Jakes and Stephen Leach and not Clarky, not Brian Clarkson. He did me, actually was instrumental in getting my son prosecuted with Toby Trofoe because they went when I wasn't in the boat and they went without my say-so and took the boat and they caught two salmon which they had confiscated and uh, I went at the time, it was Viscount Mills who was the top dog and I was very friendly with the professor over at Esketh Bank. What was his name? And, and Louise, his wife. He was advisor to the... He was a medical doctor and, uh, and uh, also... Uh, Professor Kershaw. Professor William Kershaw. He advised the Ribble Fisheries Association on matters of marine biology and things like that. And he was a fantastic old man. And he put up a damn good case for our lad who was at this time just starting at Cambridge. And he was... You know, very worried that it was going to affect him, you know. But, yeah, they got, they got done because, basically, the, the lad that was one of the endorsees on my licence, he, he gave Clarkie a big mouthful and they, were, they got to argue. And then Clarkie, he then took the stance of, well, if you're going to be awkward, I'll be awkward. And that was it. Then I wrote to Viscount Mills, he wrote back to me and... He said, unfortunately, he was going through the due processes of law and there was no way that could they go back on what had already gone through. You've given us some insight into how rules can be interpreted and their effect. But wherever you have rules, there will always be people willing either to ignore or perhaps work around them. Without naming names, do you have any examples or amusing little anecdotes in that regard? Like what I just told you about years ago where the old chap... And they used to actually, apparently, these two, two fellas, they were well known, and the old Bailey Maitland and Les Beaver, who was a Bailey for that time, old Les Beaver, they used to be pulling their hair out because these boys, they had actually a, a line that was with a load of boys and floats on it. And when the Bailey used to chase them, they used to anchor the fish on the boys with a weight and then go down later on. And when they were coming ashore, well, they, obviously they had nothing. But when they went back down, <laughs> they could go and pick the fish up because they buoyed them up and they knew where the boys were. And then, like I say, this one of the chaps, he, I think the police called at his house and the, the bailiffs and uh, they wanted to see him, but he'd run in the front door and run out of the back, but he'd left two salmon in bed with his wife who was sick upstairs. And it's a well-known fact because his son has told me the story many times and I would imagine it would be true because... There are many, many stories about him, and especially in a, there's a book called, I think it's The, the Dawn or something like The Last Dawn, or something about shooting on the marsh, and he was big into shooting, and he was a well-known, an inveterate poacher, he was a well-known poacher. But 
to it, a likeable fella all the same. But not all poachers are, are bad. <laughs> so, one of the humorous stories is um, where one of the biggest fish ever caught, apparently, was by an old fisherman across from Esketh Bank, and he said, uh, well, we did to catch it, Bill. He said, well, he said, I catch it in a field full of sheep. He said, well, how, how, did, how does to be in like the catch it in a, a field full of sheep? He said, well, they were a watering, and what he'd been doing, he'd been fishing in high water, he'd had his net stretched over the wall in between the channel proper and the grass verge, and there were sheep grazing on the grass verge, and the fish struck at the end of the net, and all the sheep were flying all over the place because the fish had startled him. That was one story, and apparently that was well in the £30. And I've seen quite a few £30 fish, but I've never caught one myself. Mine's biggest being £27.5. But the one of the strangest things that my father caught was a a horse and a cart that had been a shrimper from over Southport and the cart had, and the horse had got bogged in in the sand and uh, got drowned and he got it in the net and he, he picked that up one night in the middle of the night. He said and the stink was abominable, he said. <laughs> when he said it was all dropping to bits was the horse. And <laughs> so he got a... A horse and cart in the shafts. And my grandfather, well, he uh, he was a tall storyteller. And he uh, he said he caught the biggest eel, the biggest eel in the world. The biggest snig, which was a big thing, was snigging when we used to go bobbing, bobbing for snigs. We used to fill a boat full of snigs bobbing. And it's a mild, beautiful, wonderful. My grandmother used to make snig pies. My mother, she's still alive at 96. And her snig pies were famous. And my grandfather, he said he caught the biggest snig in the world. Tom Reitz, Big Snig. I set it local pub one night, Erkening fishermen's tails. Some were as big as finger ends, some as big as whales. I erkened and I waited until I gate me cue to tell about my grandfather Tom and day he had his do. Now day were bright and sunny as he set off in his yacht with a bobbin rod and a tin of bait to his favourite little spot. And looking down at water to see if anchor were out, he see a sight that give him a freight and made his blood run cowed. For there under water in a sunken wreck of steel were a great black eyed with me and eyes, a monster conger eel, opening and shutting, a mouth as big as a barge, in all this world and he'd seen some, but knew him were as large. He dropped his line he worked side, with a great six inch lob worm, and with puffing cheeks in a lazy flick the stig began to squirm. At first it looked them birdic teeth, and made a fearful swoop, that nearly pooped poor Tom's arm out and broached his trusty sloop. It tore him off at a cracking pace who were rocks and banks and showed, but he wouldn't get let go. The bugger been no, Tom Reed to get nowed. Now fellas it pubber or gog, eating to me tail. He getting ten tones around the mass while madly trying to bail. He passed his oars, Larenka Merks went through the China Sea, and at Cape Verde he left the word, back home at six for tea. He were feeling rough and terrible dilfer, and my were very fain. Went away to starboard, looming up his other coast to Spain, and finishing up where he set off, our hero were really tired, and to his great relief and disbelief, the snig had now expired. He holded up to the level at deck, and grabbed the merlin spike, and with mighty blows across his nose, gave it a good last right, and the human story ended, and all gathered were amazed, and it weren't the beer that made him stir, and act like they were dazed. But how does that know it were biggest, biggest snig of all? Chunder shifty Sam from his corner seat, thy story's rather tall. I looked at him right at thy and said, thy little Stuart, 
Because when he stabbed it in his head, blood sunk bloody booted. And what about rule bending today? As far as I'm concerned, them boys down there are all saints. I have never, never myself, personally, I've never seen old you Baxter bend the rules. I never saw my father bend the rules. But what we did used to do, and it, I've never seen any for years. And especially when I was working on the lighting of the boys and gassing the boys, because I worked on the river as well for the corporation as well as working in the building trade. And I was steersman on the dredgers as well, for a bit. And um, we used to get loads of chokies, you know, fish that had choked. General theory was that there'd either been a big fresh and the gills had got silted up. And we used to see two or three when we were going down, gassing the boys. Oh, there's one there, there's one there. And straight into its side. Maybe the seagulls had, had a good do at it, pecked all its eyes out, been up its backside. Sometimes one of the old chaps... Old Tommy Butcher, who was famous on the River Tommy, he was skipper of the Nat, which was the launch that was involved in gassing the boys and the lights, and he took us down to maintain the lights. And he was famous, was Tommy. He'd, he'd, he'd see a fish, and there might only be a, a couple of pounds left in the middle of a 20-pound fish. Ah, it'll be all right when it's weshed. He said, it, you know, <laughs> cut the piece out of the middle and wash it. And then another... Uh, meter was it oh well there's lice on it yeah there's still lice on it so it's not been there so long you know chokies used to be loads of chokies but thank god we haven't seen any of them for a good number of years it must be 15 years since i saw a chokie but there were a lot of chokies in the old days what effect if any is salmon farming having on your branch of fishing I have heard it said that rather than being a problem, it has actually made wild salmon even more valuable than before for the upmarket end of the restaurant trade. To be quite candid, I don't mind farm salmon. I find it quite good to eat. The comparison between a wild salmon and, and farm salmon would be, to me, if I had to put it into words, would be like eating a, a cultivated mushroom or one that you've picked nicely that was freshly grown in a field in the morning. I think the wild mushrooms taste much better. But I wouldn't like to pay the price that wild salmon is apparently fetching at this moment in time when I could eat farm salmon, which, to my way of thinking, is not much different. Uh, I, I can enjoy farm salmon as I can enjoy wild salmon, but if the, the rich and the famous and the landed gentry want to eat wild Atlantic salmon, well, I would imagine it's still worthwhile catching salmon and selling it on to uh, apparently they go to all the top hotels like in Liverpool and Manchester and uh, there's only very wealthy people can afford to buy them I would imagine I don't get a, a great price I don't get much myself in the way of financial reward for them I mean it's always the middle man that makes the money not the fellow that sat down in the middle of the night freezing cold and in the howling gale and raining so the two aspects of providing salmon for the table can comfortably coexist. Well, the, extra, the amount of fish that are being caught while salmon... I don't know, you see, I, I'm not getting any feedback from the Ribble Fisheries Association now about salmon catches on rod and line. I would imagine I do get... I have friends that are anglers and sometimes I get information from them. Boy, they've been catching salmon up there, I'll tell you. And one that goes, he goes on the Border-esque and he goes on the the Eden and uh, he goes on the Loon. And this catch and return, 
about two years ago, he showed me half a dozen fish that he'd, he'd landed on the loon. And no, sorry, it was the Eden. Uh, he'd landed on the Eden. And I said, well, now then, no catch and return there, is it? Well, well, Harry, you know, you, you know what it's like, you know, when you... I said, well, was it supposed to be catch and return? But uh, I said, it doesn't bother me. Because uh, it doesn't really have an effect on me. Once the salmon have gone up there and in the domain of the, the rod and line man, they've gone. It's not very often they drop back. Only if you get a big fresh, you'll get one that's ripe and that's dropping back and coming down. I don't personally think in my lifetime I've never had a kelp. But that one of the biggest fish that I ever caught, I was out with McGinty again. This fish, McGinty said, bloody hell, he said, a fish... And I said, an hour rowing with the back to it like. He said... I said, what are you on about? He said, there's a fish jumped, he said, about half a mile back. He said, nearly a mile, he said, it could be a mile back. He said, there's a fish jumped, he said, biggest bloody fish I've ever seen in my life. I said, give up. He said, I'm telling you now, he said, it were that length. I said, give over, it's like a bloody porpoise. I'm telling you. So I'm rowing away. Next thing, he says, he's jumped again. And I look round, missed it again. He said, it's that big. No, I said, give over. I said, you're taking the mickey. Anyhow, next thing he said, it's there again. So I looked around and I saw, I've never seen a fish as big in my life. And it was, it must have been, well, I know how big it was because we caught it. I said, I hope it keeps coming this way. And we got to Lytham, exactly in the place where I told you we didn't like being, where all you bachelors didn't like being, amongst all the sunken wrecks, trees, and it was just coming flood. And this fish had jumped a couple of times and it was, Waving about, it must have been trying to delouse itself or something, I don't know. And uh, the next thing, I said, I hope it keeps going this way. I said, but look where we are. I said, it's coming flood. I said, look where we are. I said, we're going to be in lumber here. We've got to pick up. And next thing, about 20, 30 carts went under. I said, look. I said, look at that. I said, we're fast. I said, that fish is about. I said, look. I said, we'll have to go. I said, we'll have to go and get this. You know, I thought we'd got on a a sunken wreck or something, or a, an old mooring from one of the you know, yachts that were there. So we went across them, picking up, and this head came out of the water. I'm not joking, it was massive. And I got it, got it into the boat, and it went, my boat is what, about six foot beam? It went from one side of the boat to the other, across the thwart, or thoft as we call them, across the thwart of the boat, and it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. It wasn't really what you call a salmon. It was a hybrid of some sort. And when I took it into Lanigan to weigh, it was 22 pound weight. And it was narrow across the back. It was only about three inches across the back and deep like that. But there was no girth to it or width or anything. It was just like a big flat salmon. <laughs> so, so that was one of the weirdest catches and we got salmon price for it but the next time I took some fish in no I said I'm not paying you salmon price for that he said I'll have to charge you sea trout price he said it was pale he said it was absolutely white you know the flesh so what it was I don't know I mean I have heard tales of the old fellas used to come bull moat which was like a cross between a salmon and a, a sea trout or yeah they used to come bull moat they were like a hybrid fish what, in your opinion, then, is the future, firstly for Atlantic salmon as a species and for salmon fishing generally? Well, unless I can get some kind of a meeting with the, the powers that be and try to get them to rescind the 
pledge that we made to retire gracefully from the, the fray when we were either too old or died, I would like them to give people the opportunity, if they wanted, to take a licence out and keep it going. Because it's, it is a tradition and it's something people are all too uh, keen on. I mean, we're having two houses built at the end of the year. They're knocking an old pub down in Kirkham. It's after the event, when it's gone, that you miss these things. I think that they should be able to put back into place, you know, that licences are made available to people for now and in the future. I mean, I could say, well, I'm coming to the end and I'm not really bothered. But it's there are lads I know in the village that are very big nature lovers and into nature and... Well, especially, I think he he would be prime to have a licence. He's a really good lad, and to carry the tradition on would be great. And so I don't see why they should just say... Just We, we have agreed with the, the Rod and Lineman, virtually. The Environment Agency don't seem to have much of a, a say nowadays. It's the, the Ribble Fisheries Association, because if they're breeding the, the fish, I do uh, I sympathise with them if they're breeding the fish and they think we're taking... But we're not taking the fish because, I mean, what does 320s constitute? 60. Well, that's that's how many fish will have been caught this year with five salmon boats. It's all right saying, well, it's not worth your bothering. It's not a matter of whether... But I could go down that river and fish. I don't need to have a licence to go down that river and put a salmon net out. It's not illegal. It's not illegal. The only illegality comes when I bring that salmon ashore. I can catch that salmon in that net so long as I throw it back, be it dead or be it alive, which is what's happening with the bass men. When all the bass men were operating, there were about 10 bass men at one time. They were catching fish left, right and centre. There was one well-known man, Cat Weasel. He got prosecuted so many times, but he was laughing all the time. He was coming. Steve Leach, the bailiff, who is a very good friend of mine, he caught Cat Weasel coming ashore with six salmon at Lytham. He chased him. Cat Weasel ran into the water, tipped the sack upside down, but Steve managed to retrieve two of the fish and Cat Weasel got prosecuted. He was back the week after and a boatful. He was catching fish left, right and centre. And he wasn't a bad bloke, Cat Weasel. He was fishing for bass, fishing for mullet and in the process of fishing for bass and mullet he was catching salmon. And then we had a fella in court. I went to the court because they, they wanted me to speak. But thankfully, I wasn't called to say anything. But there was a fella from the uh, Fisheries Protection Service in his uniform. He looked like a damned admiral. And he was saying, there is no way will a bass or a mullet net contain a fighting salmon. He said, a fighting salmon will go through a bass net like a dose of salts. And about the year after... There's a bass fisherman stood at front of Larrigan's with a 60-pound porpoise that he caught in his bass net. And the picture was in the Lytham St. Anne's and he's holding the, the porpoise up there. So, yeah, a bass net will catch something. And I know it will. And sea trout, well, I mean, he'll hammer sea trout. So the future's not looking rosy? No, no, it's not rosy. Well, it... I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say that. I don't know how many salmon have been returned up upriver or... I've been accounted for. Well, I know how many salmon I've sent my returns in and I know how many salmon I've returned. I've sent a correct return in which that is one stipulation that was made to me when I took my licence out and I got my own licence was that I sent a correct return in. And I have never, ever 
sent a return in that has not been correct. What I mean by Rosie is not in terms of fish numbers, but the ability to fish for them using traditional licensed nets. Obviously there's only, I mean Russell Wignall is shrimping, Russell's another salmon license, he's got a license. Billy McKean, he's another lad, now he's the only one that fishes to any extent like myself. I probably put more ties in this year than anybody else, basically because I've got the time. But he has his, own, his greenhouse, he said he's running a business at the same time. So, and Russell is shrimping, so basically I am the one that fishes more than anybody else. Andy Porter, who has another licence, well he's bass and mullet fishing at the bottom end, he has a great big long liner, he's fishing for anything that moves his Andy, so I don't, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how he does, but uh, he stands by the letter of the law as far as I'm concerned, because Steve Leach has pulled him time after time after time and there's nothing untoward, he's never caught him coming ashore with salmon when he's been fishing for a bass or a mullet or whatever. Had I been a younger bloke, I would have definitely gone into bass fishing. But I've never been a big man for motors, and I'm not good mechanically. I'm not what you might call the most practical of people. Motors have a, a nasty habit of packing in, and I wouldn't be able to fix one. And motors seem to always have a propensity to pack in when I've got them anywhere near me. Uh, they're just a traditional fisherman just wanting to carry on in the traditional way. And that is just, hopefully, somebody else can do it when I've gone. But it doesn't look likely. It seems to me that once I've gone, a lot of them will go. But there will be then poaching going on, especially with men from old traditional fishing families in Lytham that know the river and know how to operate down there, they will poach. I mean, going back when I'm saying when, when the bass men were at the height of their operations, they were hammering fish, they were hammering fish, definitely catching salmon. I mean, our, our catches went down, but you see, the, the Ribble Fishers Association, we are tarred with the same brush. I mean, the bona fide uh, licensed netsmen have probably been responsible for the damage that the bass men were doing but thankfully now I think there are only about three people operating for bass that's that we know of and there's nothing to stop the cockle men in the dead of night whizzing a net across because they've got the boats and they've got the the gear the equipment so rather than being a means of making a living salmon netting these days is more of a hobby or even dare I say a means of keeping historical links alive with the once traditional way of fishing you certainly wouldn't want to base making a living out of it. And for what it's worth, for my money, it could hardly be seen as a threat to rod and line catches upstream. Illegal salmon netting might be, but that's another matter, and one which should have no bearing at all on how the few remaining legal salmon netting licences are viewed. My thanks then to Harry Whiteside for taking the time to put the other side of the story, and to help preserve another valuable snapshot of fishing history. Mm -hmm.